0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Lean Pub Front Matter Podcast. I'm your host, Len Epp. Recently, I had a chance to interview Brad Sams, who amongst his other media roles is a tech journalist known for his Microsoft scoops, and who is the author of a recently published book telling the behind-the-scenes story of the fall and rise of the Microsoft Surface brand, based on over two dozen anonymous interviews. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review us in iTunes. It really does help enormously. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at FrontMatterCast. And if you haven't already, I suggest you check out LeanPub.com if you're interested in writing your own book, Or course. Thanks for listening to this little introduction, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Brad Sams. Brad is a writer and podcaster and executive editor of both Petri.com, one of the world's leading content resources for IT professionals, and Thorot.com, the website for the award winning technology journalist Paul Thorot. As a tech journalist, he's particularly noted for his knack for breaking stories on Microsoft's upcoming products. To hear Paul's podcast, you can subscribe to The Sam's Report, as well as the First Ring Daily podcast in iTunes, and you can also subscribe to Brad's popular channel on YouTube. You can follow Brad on Twitter and Instagram at Snap at BDSams, and check out his author page at Thorot.com. Brad is the author of the book Beneath the Surface, the inside story of how Microsoft overcame a $900 million write-down to become the hero of the PC industry. Based on years of his own research and dozens of anonymous interviews with Microsoft insiders, in the book, Brad tells the fascinating story behind the fall and rise of Microsoft Surface device brand, which had a disastrous launch in 2012, but was turned around and is now a pretty big success, making its story of particular interest to anyone curious about the business behind building and rebuilding brands. In this interview, we're going to talk about Brad's background and career, his work as executive editor for Popular Tech news websites, his book, and at the end we'll talk a little bit about his experience uh, creating the book. So thank you, Brad, for being on the Front Matter podcast.
1: Well, thanks for uh, thanks for the invite, and that was um, that, that was quite the intro. You you definitely did your background and your research, and uh, you got all the enunciations correct. And um, not everybody can say that they uh, they get that right on the first try. So well done, well done. <laughs> thank you very much. I find that there's a,
0: a sort of positive correlation between the amount of research that you do into an interview and the quality of the interview in the end. So hopefully that absolutely works out this way, too. Um, I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Uh, So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you made your way into the world of tech journalism.
1: Yeah, so this is it's at least to me, it's interesting. I think everybody probably find some interest in their own journey. Um, Mine started in college. I was uh, poor, like many other college students, right, trying to pay the bills, trying to figure out – uh, but just how how I'm going to eat and, and stay above water and what I got really good at it doing in college was building up blogs and then selling backlinks I was one of those people in college that used to sell backlinks for money um, This was before Google did their panda update, which means that if you had a a high page ranked website You could sell a backlink to somebody for a couple hundred bucks and um, make some money and so during my my course of earning an accounting degree and our bachelor's in accounting, I was running at some point dozens of websites because you would try to build it all the way up to a Google page rank four would be the holy grail five would be a home run. And then sell that link, and that would last for three to four months, and then Google would kill the site, and then you'd have to try to sell another one. And by doing that, I got really good at at a couple things. One, building websites based off of WordPress and hacking that stuff together. And two, more importantly, how to write about almost anything. I mean, I was writing about hot dog stands in Daytona Beach who wanted better SEO to um, Cape Cods for sale in New Jersey, like just anything across the board. And so I found another website called Neowen.net, and they were writing about Microsoft. And so I started helping them out with some SEO stuff. And uh, that's kind of how I got into the tech journalism world. And I I was doing it on the side as I was building up another professional career in accounting and eventually earned my MBA. And at one point, um, you know, I had an option to make. It's like, am I going to run down this tech journalism route or am I going to go down my CPA route? And uh, fortunately, I, I met... Um, Paul Tharat, who I'd known for a couple of years, I met him and another guy in a bar in New York City, and that individual owned a couple of tech websites. He said, "Hey, can you help me come run them? Not only just write, but I need help actually running them." And it was it was the right time and right place, and uh, I've been doing it for many years now. And uh, what was your first uh, introduction to blogging about tech specifically? Well, what my very my, my very first article was .net was about a 100-gigabyte laptop hard drive. It was the very first thing that I ever wrote about on the Internet. Not, it was just I was in the role at that site of, here's a press release, Brad, can you turn it around and and write something about it so we can publish it because it's they're trying to get traffic and they're trying to build things up. Um, but my first, I think, big event that I ever went to was CES, and that was in, oh, gosh, th- sometime in the mid-2000s. And I'm curious. I mean, I think a lot of people on the other
0: side of it see people who uh, write about tech as people who sort of, you know, both get some insider information, which is something mm-hmm. I want to talk to you about in a little bit. But, you know, this is this is just a bit cute. But do you get all kinds of cool products and stuff sent to you uh, before they're released?
1: So yes and no. There was definitely a phase where I was all in on review units, right? It was great getting laptops and phones and all this stuff. And I have tons hanging out and around um candidly i've gotten away from that a little bit um of the microsoft hardware which is how the book started to come about but at some point it just jaded with it like here's another laptop with the exact same specs but one's made by acer one's made by dell and one's made by lenovo and there's just a little few things differently and i kind of a little tired of of, of writing about that stuff it's it's an it's a fun thing to do for a while but you can definitely kind of get i, I don't want to say bored but um there, there's other challenges out there that i find more enticing than saying okay here here's a laptop and what's great about it i mentioned petri.com
0: and com in the introduction but you're actually in charge of more than that through the blue whale web media group and i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what your what your larger role is
1: yeah, so our our two larger properties are Petri and Throt, and Petri is for IT pros, and Throt is more of the consumer tech channel. But my role sits with BWW Media Group which is the parent company of those two sites. But there's a lot of other things that we do. We go to events. We've got other kind of sub-brands, if you will. We've got other products. But my role in general is to, one, help define our content strategy to make sure that on the IT pro side that we're we're writing about the right things like Office 365, Azure, AWS, and all that good stuff. And then on the throughout side to make sure that we're staying up with the trends because consumer tech is very trend-heavy. It, it, it's – You have products coming out their cycles and making sure that we're always just kind of in a line And so I write across both properties But then at the same time I also go out and and quite literally buy content for the petri side so I I, we have a a team of freelancers who Contribute content and then if there is a new topic coming out I will go out and try to find somebody to write about it and buy content from them and um, And then when it comes to design work, it's basically my job in a nutshell is to make sure traffic is coming into the site. Um, whatever that entails, if that's design, if that's if that's content, if that's SEO work, if that's video strategy, if that's going to events, it all kind of falls under where I reside. And then I dole it out uh, to the people as needed to make sure that the two sites are just remaining healthy from a, a traffic perspective.
0: And as an influencer, do you find that People try to influence you specifically companies is, is there is there a sort of inter- there must be a kind of interesting
1: quality sort of contacts you would have with PR people yeah there, there's there's this big trend um, in the industry and I don't know if it's trend is the right word but one of the the things to exactly what you're talking about is I get emails any anytime any sort of event happens in the industry, if it's consumer tech or whatever, I will get random PRs from people saying, hey, would you like a quote from an executive on the topic? and I don't know if anybody ever takes that stuff up because if I'm gonna go out and try to get a quote from somebody on a a specific topic, it needs to be somebody that I trust. Um, If it's a security-related issue, if it's a a VR, AR, whatever, I wanna find somebody who is trusted in that industry, not somebody who randomly emails me and says, hey, talk to our executives. Um, What you really see a lot of, at least in my inbox, is there's a lot of PR companies trying to get their brand heard, which granted is their role, but they go about these things the wrong way, in my opinion. Like if you've never talked to me in my life um, and then you email me and saying, hey, can you cover our company? Like that does that's not a it's not a thing. It, it should be it's a relationship. Um, I need to understand why I should cover your company. Granted, everyone's going to say because we have the new hot product. But there, there's a genuine approach to how stories get written and told and all that stuff. And I can almost guarantee you that it's not from a cold email that comes into somebody's inbox.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. You, you bring that up. Uh, the there's, there's so many ways that people try to, uh, get the word out about what they're doing. I mean, startup people tend to probably have more passion than say a, a paid PR person, but, uh, establishing that connection with someone is so important. You remind me, I was at a, a tech conference in Vancouver not too long ago, and uh, there was someone presenting and he, he said that um, every once in a while he gets an email and he, and he put it up on the screen hiding the person's name but saying, you know, hi, just following up on my last email, Would you like yep. to go out, would you like to go out for drinks to talk about this? And and he sort of went into a, a voice as though he was responding. And so, oh, sure, just let me call my wife and, and tell her that I won't be there to pick up the kids tonight. And when she asks why, I'll say, because I'm going for drinks. And when she asks with who, I'll say, I don't know. It's someone who emailed me. Um, and, yeah, just... Uh, it's, it, it is a really interesting challenge. And, and I think something that a lot of people who are trying to promote the things that again, whether they're paid for it, or whether they're like, genuinely kind of straightforwardly passionate about it, that establishing a real connection with someone is actually way more important than an email blast, or something like yeah. that.
1: You're, you're exactly right. And it's, I, I'm going to butcher the statistic here, but I know it was pretty heavy handed, it was something like five or six to one PR people per tech journalist. So there's the quantity of on the PR side is way outweighed by the number of people who actually write about this stuff. And granted, I don't write about everything. I mean, I write a lot about in the IT pro space and, and the Microsoft space. So it's easier for me to filter things out that if I get something that's like a, a really like Oracle heavy pitch, it's like, guys, you're not even doing your research um, about what you're bl- to your point. These people get really kind of aggressive too, where it's They'll just send you random calendar invites or they'll they'll change the subject line, which to me is always straight into the trash. Like if it's their first time emailing me and it starts out with R.E. and then colon to make it look like they responded to an email like that's not a good that, oh that's not God. a good way to start off a relationship by lying. So it's uh it, it, I don't want it to come off as as a complaint, but it, it's if you're going to pitch someone, do your research and, and try to be genuine because that's, that's the best route to go. You can never go wrong doing that.
0: It's really interesting on the on the broader issue of trust, you know, establishing, attempting to establish a relationship with with the journalist or writer by lying from the very beginning seems like a bad strategy. Um, I I know that you 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 have had experience in your career with people uh, sending you information and secret information or leak leaks. how do you i'm really curious as a journalist how do you know how do you establish trust with someone like that because you really don't know who they are or or whether what they're sending you is real i mean, i mean i imagine you get a kind of like feel yeah. for it after a while but how do how do you establish trust with someone who's cold emailing you leave
1: yeah so that that's a it's an interesting topic because it, To Bluntly answer your question. You never know right? It's somebody will send you something and they'll be like look This is this is what Microsoft is doing next Tuesday Um, And if it's their first time ever contacting you you have absolutely no idea So the thing then you try to do is you try to go find somebody else who might know and verify the information That's the that is the absolute easiest way But that's so much easier on paper than in reality because if somebody says me sends me something that hasn't been announced Finding somebody else inside of a company like Microsoft that has a hundred thousand employees who also knows about that thing that hasn't been announced is tricky. And two, you gotta be careful because if that person has that information, you don't know how widespread it is inside the company. If only five people know about it, there's no way I'm gonna write about that because that'll identify who is passing that information along. You gotta wait till it reaches reaches a certain level, and then you try to write about it and you There's many different approaches you can take here, but to your point of trying to verify that information, that is probably about half of my job, to be honest. Like, I get a lot of different tips and everything else, and what I do is then try to put the puzzle together, right? If somebody says, hey, something's not happening next Tuesday, I don't know what it is, but I know it's, let's just say it's talking about windows and I go talk to the windows people and like, hey, well, what are you guys doing next week? And they might tell me a little bit or something. And, and it's all just trying to weave these pieces together to understand the narrative that is coming down the pipeline. And Um, every time I publish a scoop or whatever else, it's a risk because Microsoft changes plans. Um, just like any company, things get delayed, products get canceled. And so the the trick is knowing about something. And then the other side of that is knowing when to publish it, because if you publish too early, you might kind of shut off your, your data stream or your, your insider info. If you publish it too late, somebody else might get to you. So there's a real sweet spot of, OK, I think this is going to happen on X date. I'm pretty confident of it. This person has leaked me things or sent me things five times in a row and they've all been right. So I'm confident in that. And then it's just trying to align those three pillars to publish a, a really quality story um, about what's happening in the world uh
0: pardon the pun but for the last couple of years leaks have been uh um as as a as a subject in their own right uh thanks to the particular nature of the administration occupying the american white house and i think that uh people generally have an understanding of why a culture like the one in the white house is a Mm culture of leaks because people are kind of jockeying for position trying to frame the story their own way and the question I have for you on this topic is, why do people in the tech world leak information? So, I, in, in, yeah. in, in, I mean, they might lose their job. They might derail what's going on. Is that is, is derailing products partly what they might be trying to do? Are they are they trying to reposition products and things like
1: that? So there, there's, there's a lot of different reasons why things do or do not happen, and th- there's no way to know why everybody's motive is is for what it is. Um, The one thing I do always point out, because Microsoft asks me all this time, they say, you know, why don't you just let us announce it? And I said, well, here's the thing. Every single iPhone, since I think the 3GS has leaked and I think Apple's doing, I think they're doing okay um, selling iPhones. But what, what it comes down to is a lot of times that there's engineers who work very hard on a product and then marketing, Microsoft has a very Um, Tough time with communication. They're getting better, but they are still far from good at it And a lot of times what happens is there's an engineer who's working very passionately on a product and marketing screws up the Announcement or marketing doesn't position it as it was intended And so what happens is those engineers or those people working on the product They want to get their story out to make it better understood why something is or is not happening or what's coming down or what's going on Um, other people will know That Things are gonna leak Um, one of my bigger scoops in the past I don't know four weeks is that Microsoft is working on an Xbox console that doesn't have a a blu-ray or DVD drive in it It's called a a diskless drive And one of the reasons why that information was sent to me was that these individuals were afraid That someone else was going to uncover it because it was in the latest Xbox firmware that you could you could dig this stuff out if you knew what you were doing and that it was going to be not positioned correctly, that, Micah, that they didn't want the story to come out that, hey, Microsoft is abandoning Blu-ray and DVDs. They're, they're getting rid of physical media. And so these particular people were scared that that narrative was going to run wild when it is the furthest from the truth. And so there, everybody has their own motive and reasoning. But a lot of times it's just clarification on things that are happening to make sure the right message goes out, not just a message, because as a writer – The worst thing that I can do is to get the messaging wrong. If I would have come out and said, hey, Microsoft is is dumping DVDs and here's the proof, that would have have been really bad. Microsoft would have got a lot of backlash and they're not in a position yet to come out and fully refute that at this time. At least they typically don't. And so why people leak things and why people don't, I think it just comes down to they want to make sure that the right narrative – is going out, not just a narrative, if that makes sense.
0: It it does make sense. And it, it, it makes me think of something I hadn't thought of before, but the there's sort of competing narratives going on at say a, a tech company like Microsoft, where you have perhaps, you know, very brilliant, mm-hmm. hardworking, dedicated engineers whose for them, their primary audience for the narrative might be other people on the cutting yep. edge of the technology that they're working on. Uh, and their their interests and the narrative that they're kind of living is very different from the one that say marketing yep. uh, would be would be inhabiting, where they're thinking about like, how are we going to get this out to consumers? Or how are we going to get this? How are we going to message this for sales into enterprises? Whereas the, the tech guys might be, you totally missed the story. This little innovation that we made was actually yeah. groundbreaking. Uh, and I can see that if you if you if you know that not only that, it happened, but that it was groundbreaking in a way that no one who's not an expert in the area would know. You'd really want to get that message. Yep. In. And,
1: and particularly at Microsoft, and I know why they do this, but they are very good at not letting engineers anywhere near the press. Um, they, it's by design. They they keep them kind of behind the curtain, if you will, and which is unfortunate because those are the guys that have the best stories. And maybe that's why. And there's always some awkwardness, right, to how the sausage is made. But... Uh, I don't think transparency for a company like Microsoft, especially now that they're supporting open source and they've kind of turned turned the corner on being this um, giant in the industry. They're still a giant. Don't get me wrong. But I don't think people look at them at like an Amazon or a Google or a Facebook that's going to come and kill every industry. And so these engineers and people behind the curtain have the, have the real insight into the industry and they never are allowed to come, come forward with it unless it's in a very particular environment, which doesn't happen often. And so often what you see is that these people just find other ways to communicate um, to the outside world. Uh, that's really interesting. That touches on a subject
0: that I think uh, a lot of people in the tech world – can be preoccupied with from time to time, which is Microsoft's culture. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I've, heard, I've heard sort of things over the years about Microsoft establishing, I mean, amongst sort of developers, a very kind of competitive system uh, where you're, you're sort yep. of in direct, you're, uh, like an antagonistic relationship with your colleagues. And also in a way that um, Apple ultimately avoided given the, I'll call it the legend around Steve Jobs, although there's, most, of course, so much truth to it that, you know, he would actually, you know, be involved in things from the, you know, the, in mm-hmm. the smallest details of how products were developed in a way that other executives weren't. And then you've got Microsoft, on the other hand, with, you know, I mean, when I when I think of Steve Ballmer, for example, I think of a big red-faced loud guy who's very energetic uh, and more like an East Coast, what I you know, I'll call an East Coast executive than a kind of Silicon Valley, Steve Jobs or Elon yep. Musk type guy. Uh, I guess th- that's that's sort of like very kind of mm-hmm. high level, but is that more or less the way that Microsoft was and has it changed under...
1: Exactly. So it, it has definitely changed uh, i mean they 've ch- changed fundamental philosophies, which is why they got rid of some of their and there 's always this miscommunication that they got rid of all of their software testers that 's not completely true but it 's definitely changed and it 's changed for the better um, under under Balmer and Sanofsky and kind of the previous regime. It was very quiet and isolated development, and everything was done in silos and don 't get me wrong, Microsoft is not a perfect utopia at this point. Compared to where they were ten years ago, they are in a much better, much more um, less siloed infrastructure but there's still there's still some old school guard that goes on and some silos that are still there but From a a cross-org perspective, it is much more friendly to be on, let's say, the OneDrive team and go walk over to the Outlook team and be like, hey, let's build something awesome together. As opposed to a couple years ago where it would have been like, why would we do that? Because our bonuses are only tied to OneDrive performance. Who cares about helping Outlook? And so they have done a good job. They still have ways to go. The, The other Cultural issue that Microsoft is still dealing with and they haven't figured this out yet is Microsoft rewards like most companies shipping a new product They don't do a very good job of rewarding people who fix the bugs and make products stable So there's a lot of let's ship this product and get it out the door because we want the recognition But then they fall a little flat on saying okay These are the guys that are maintaining our OneDrive or SharePoint and they're making it awesome and stable and you know what, OneDrive hasn't gone down for a year those people don't get the recognition that they do because that's not the culture that Microsoft has developed or, or has not fully developed yet. And so they're working on it. But that's kind of where we see these awkward Windows 10 builds come out because it's, hey, let's ship this build, not let's really make it rock solid. Granted, somebody's going to call me out and be like, hey, they are working to make it rock solid because they have to. But the reward emphasis is always on shipping, not repairing, if that makes sense. It it does actually um – because so many LeanPub authors uh,
0: work mm-hmm. in tech, um, a lot of the topics that we discuss on this podcast are related to software and development. And I've interviewed some software testers before, and so the subject has come up of how in, I guess one would say, a sort of conventional development environment in a company, the testing is looked down mm-hmm. on uh, as being you know, not the kind of High-level work that the ambitious people are doing, Uh, and you mentioned that that sort of famously Microsoft has actually had a change with respect to that. So it's it's still not perfect, as you're saying. But can you talk a little bit about that? About the idea that Microsoft got rid of all their testers. What what does that? So
1: this idea that if you write the code, you should be able to test the code. That is that is the basics of what happened. So they had this Windows 10, and there's they also had this Insider program. So the idea was. That if you're writing the code to ship in Windows 10, you should also be able to test that code. And then once you're done testing it, it goes to the insider program, which Microsoft had. And at, at its peak, it had about 7 million users testing the latest build of Windows. So it looked great on paper, right? Joe Joe A writes the code. Joe A tests the code. He thinks it's good. It goes out to the, these massive amounts of insiders just through, just through sheer numbers that that Operation or whatever that feature will get triaged. It'll come back to Joe a he'll fix it and then it'll ship out to everybody The big assumption that they made there was that the seven million people would actually be a testing that feature and two Actually try to test that feature and so the the challenge they're running into now is that they have people coding and testing but they're not getting that second set of eyes You know in a at a high level they're not getting that second set of eyes on the product at a level that it needs to be Uh, because an engineer will triage and test something completely different than a consumer will a consumer will go file save as they won't go file save as while holding down the caps lock key or page um, whatever page down or, or any of those other types of things or num lock turned on because that's not what they're Innately, uh, you know accustomed to doing and so that's been some of the challenge is that they they got rid of the this testing layer in hopes that just through odd numbers That they would get that same quality and th- they've struggled through that transition We've we've seen Microsoft make a lot of different changes and they're trying and I think we're gonna see more changes in 2019 because of 1809 was a the update that came out uh, the second half of this year was a, a terrible release and so Microsoft is in this position where I don't think they want to admit that they need that extra layer of testing. But at the same time, Windows for Microsoft isn't a growth product anymore. Um, It's very much legacy might be too strong of a word, but it's very much a product that is just going to kind of be sustained for a while. It's not there's not going to be 10 million. um, Well, I should say 10 billion users of Windows 10 anytime soon it's just it's there people use it it's an appliance like your washing machine and you just need it to work and so microsoft is now dealing in that new reality
0: i remember when my mom got a windows 8 computer i spent an hour trying to do something very (laughs) simple uh that one would take for granted in sort of previous versions of windows i forget exactly what it was i would think i was trying to set up a cast or something like that and it was uh, it was something about like how like download i didn't know where something i downloaded went and couldn't find it Uh, and i'm pretty good with
1: you know the computer
0: uh and i i just want to ask you how i mean how did windows 8
1: happen so windows 8 happened because windows 7 was so good um I mean, and that's that that might be a little glossing over some of the underlying details. But Windows 7 came out and it was rock solid and um, pretty quick out of the gate. It was apparent that, hey, this is going to be a, a long term OS. People aren't going to want to migrate away from this. And so what they did was they realized that, hey, we have a chance. We, we need we have a chance to take a risk with Windows because Windows 7 is so good. And we also know that touch centric PCs are gonna become a thing. They knew that touch interfaces needed to happen or were going to happen regardless. And so what they were trying to do was they were trying to build two operating systems in one. They wanted something that was good with mouse and keyboard and they wanted something that was good to touch with your finger. And then they took this idea that this is what we need to do. And then Steven Sanofsky uh, basically siloed off the entire windows team from the outside world and said this is how we're going to build it and it's this way or or the highway and so they didn't get enough feedback they didn't get enough uh, true testing and there they were pretty much running with fingers in their ears and saying this is how it's going to be this is the future and you got to remember this is a, a period of time granted at the end of the cycle when microsoft just kind of ruled the world um, if they wanted to go into a market they could just walk into it their their smartphones were still doing pretty well with windows mobile granted there these new challengers called iOS and Android, but Windows Mobile was still a thing. When they wanted to go into the gaming console world, they just walked in with an Xbox, and now, now they own part of the market. And so they they kind of had this heads down approach that hey, we can tell the world what it needs rather than react to and listen to. And so you, you put all this together, and you put together some leadership who wasn't who, who thought they had all the answers and that they were the best thing in the world. And out comes Windows 8 and it flops in, in just dramatic fashion. Um, and it was known very quickly within weeks at a time that this was going to be a huge disaster. And then we see a couple of executives leave the company. We see a turning of the ship. And then, um, you know, Microsoft is where it is at today. I've 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 got a question
0: about that sorry yep. to interrupt um but it's something that I think as just a sort of normal person on the outside looking at these giant famous companies and you see people who get elevated within them uh have a appear to have a sense of their own personal importance mm-hmm. and sway uh and they can be completely on the wrong track and make disastrous decisions they can they can be you know sort of walking on clouds and ordering yep. people around to put it crudely, for years, like they're the greatest thing since sliced bread, and the whole time they're completely wrong about mm-hmm. what they're doing in a very obvious way. The question I have is, do you think that when people like that create a, a disaster like Windows 8, where even like a sophisticated user is just shouting at it all the time, uh, do they internalize that, or do they move on to the next thing, or do they just shove it down and
1: repress? So in the case of Windows 8, I think, they just shoved it down, candidly. I, I I remember in those early days writing feedback thinking, like, this is a little too aggressive. I mean, they removed the start button from Windows, which has been the most iconic and most stable thing since 95. And when you take that away and there the other massive blunder, which, again, was – they thought that they had such an intuitive OS that they didn't put in Windows 8, what the, what is called an out-of-box experience or OOBE, which is you start up Windows and it kind of tells you how to use it. And when you looked at Windows 8, there was no start button. What you're supposed to do is just move your mouse into a corner and then this thing would appear and then it would work. But there was no way to educate. Oh,
0: God, I'm getting flashbacks.
1: Yeah, there there was no way to educate the user. And so for the technical people, they could eventually figure it out. But to the person who walks into Best Buy and says, I'm going to buy that $499 Lenovo laptop. And then they're presented with this thing and they're looking at it going, where's the start button? Where are all my apps? Uh, what is this this store thing now that doesn't have any apps in it? and it was it was a perfect disaster of everything you shouldn't do during software development of an operating system, all just colliding at a time in history where Microsoft was getting pressure from these new smartphone companies um, like Apple and Google. I mean, Apple and Google weren't new, but their new iOS and Android were relatively new, and Microsoft just had this perfect perfect recipe for a disaster. Uh, of an operating system, and it it hurt hard because they were coming off of Vista, which Vista was a technical disaster from an underlying infrastructure perspective, but not from a usability perspective. Windows 8 was the opposite. It was underneath the hood. It was actually okay, but from a usability perspective, it was a complete train wreck, and that's what sank it and it ultimately cost Sanofsky and eventually Steve Ballmer his job. Uh, I have a couple of selfish questions that I'd like to ask you. Sure.
0: Um, One of which is uh, I used to uh, work in investment banking, and in my time as an analyst, I did a lot of pretty complex stuff in Excel, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a a world-changing product, uh, very amazing. Um, It's 2018, and I I have an iMac Pro, and Excel is still kind of laggy on it and forces me to enable macros every time I open it. (laughs) Why, Why? why Why does Excel still not really work on apple products
1: so that that's a very large question for somebody who works on that team but my i i pretty candidly well the macro question is easy because that was a that's a virus thing that's legacy from windows um, you used to be able to inject things into macro i guess you still can inject things into macros. And Just totally corrupt the system granted. I don't think windows is gonna fall for that anymore But that that's where that enable macros functionality comes from because you have to enable that fun core functionality in the OS and all that other fun stuff um, the reason why it's still laggy on OS or Mac OS now is I believe it's still a port I don't know if they've gone the full native app route yet on Mac OS and I could be completely wrong on that But I knew for a while it was a really laggy piece of junk Um, mostly because of that. And I fully agree that Excel is kind of the root of the office suite. If Microsoft ever loses Excel, like if somebody comes out with a better Excel, they will be in some serious trouble because that is the stickiest thing that they do. Uh, I mean, I use Excel all the time, pivot tables and and V lookups and all that and every day. And um, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. It it seems like I mean, I guess from my perspective, uh, having been a sort of a, a, you know, not just a power user, but like, you know, I did things where like, you know, if I made a mistake that could have repercussions in the tens of millions of dollars, (laughs) Um, I mean, it would never, it would never actually result in a kind of loss, but like things could be, things could be misrepresented to that extent. Let's put it that way. If you're working on a multi-billion dollar transaction or something like that. And when you're using Excel, you want it to be a tool like a hammer you know you don't you you don't want to be thinking about the tool you want to be thinking about what you're doing and even the slightest messing around with that actually is a difference in kind rather than degree and so i noticed that uh just this, this was a couple of years ago it's not true of the latest version of excel but um i think it was excel 2011 or something like that i got it in a, for an apple for, you know for the mac os and when i when you would click the right arrow or the left arrow to move from cell to cell there was a little pause mm-hmm. a little energy. Yeah of that movement. And I was like, I mean, I, to people listening, this might sound like really particular, but like that destroyed yes. Excel. That, that one little decision actually made it, it not the product that it was yep. anymore. And how, I, I guess the question I would have is if, if you have any insight into this, how could a decision like that be made? I mean, are the people who are working on this core product not really using it in their own <laughs> professional good. That's,
1: that, that's a very that good question, why? but I know the animation you're talking about, it was like a smooth transition animation. And it was uh, – I remember when that rolled out because I wasn't quite working doing what I'm doing exactly right now. Um, But I remember when that animation rolled out because I was in the finance world like yourself and everyone complaining because it took just fractions, fractions of a second longer to move a a cell. But when you have a spreadsheet and you're living in that, that stuff adds up. To answer your question, are people using the product – That they're shipping they are a lot more now that you're i don't think you're too far off that many years ago you could be building things for excel and you could build new features like tables and whatever and functions and you would use it once make sure it works and then ship it um i think they've rectified a lot of that stuff and they've gotten much better at listening to feedback which is why that animation is no longer in that product yeah. Thank, thank goodness. It was, it, it, it's interesting. I mean,
0: just to sort of, I mean, this is very much in the weeds, but like the work that people are doing using Excel is often very important and very directly related mm-hmm. to money. Um, and to, and you know, like things where like a mistake can lose you your, your job or lose you that promotion or lose you that sale or whatever. And there's just a really deep question about the way, the mindset that people have when they're designing things that I find fascinating. So people will do things that to try and make a more delightful experience. Yep. And it's like I don't need an LED light flashing every time I hit a nail with my hammer. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not I'm not looking for a delightful experience. Um, uh, there's a there's a payment service that we use through Leanpub, which I won't name because I like it and in many ways it's very good. <laughs> but not too long ago, when you went to make a payment, it started serving up circle faces to you randomly. Uh, oh. <laughs> and I was like, this is this is uh, this product has obviously been redesigned by someone who was never in a situation where like if they made a mistake sending twenty five bucks they didn't have another twenty five yes yeah. <laughs> uh, do you do you see this this happening i mean I, I I was in preparation for this podcast I watched a couple of your uh, your your episodes with um with Paul uh, and you guys would actually go into details about how you know like when you when you uh, press escape to leave a message and I think outlook or something like that it doesn't put you back where mm-hmm. you should go is this is this a how how can a, comp- a giant company solve this this problem where sort of design trends in the sort of meta level of design end up screwing up the actual use of products?
1: Yeah, that's a that's like that's a great question because if you can solve it, you can make a bunch of money just doing pitches and walking into corporate offices. I think the thing that Microsoft and any other company needs to understand is they have to listen to the user. The user is where the bills get paid and if a user isn't complaining about the ui granted i know that there's things that companies like to do because they want every product to match they want it all to look the same microsoft's going through this kind of fluent transition design language update Um, but at the same time i think steve jobs was known or had there's a famous quote of saying that he knew where people want what people wanted before they did which is you know that's a pretty ambitious statement and That's one thing to do if you're launching a brand new product, like if you're launching an Apple Watch or whatever, um, you're creating something from scratch. When you're massaging something that already exists and you have a massive user base, you have to be very careful about making any fundamental changes to how the product works. Not just how it looks, but this is how we end up with that Excel awkward transition uh, between cells that slowed everybody down and Microsoft quickly walked back on it, thankfully. But I think when you get away from listening to your customer, that is when you start potentially heading down the wrong path with when you're updating a product.
0: Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that great answer. That's uh, I think that's that's spot on. Um, uh, And one of the things I like about about your your writing and, you know, podcasts and things that I've listened to is you often take into account the, the sort of larger context, including the internal internal battles that are being mm-hmm. fought at companies that can actually have a huge impact on, on what happens uh, my second selfish question is uh, not my own it's uh, from my co-founder Peter um, he wants to ask you if you think Microsoft will ever make an Xbox phone so he can have Halo in his pocket uh, for him this would this idea of an Xbox phone that would be, say, twice as thick as an iPhone and with mm-hmm. cast games, with a free mobile version of every Xbox One game you own on it, is that something that you you think Microsoft would ever do? And and I mean, maybe it's
1: something that, that you've actually written about. I don't I don't know, but my my co-founder. Yeah, Peter, so we have yeah. we have good news for Peter. Um, he he will be able to play <laughs> Halo or any I shouldn't say any, but he will be able to play Xbox games in his pocket. Um, and that Microsoft is working on this. It's actually called it's part of the Xbox Scarlet update, which is coming in 2020. Now, it's not exactly an Xbox phone. What Microsoft is working on is called xCloud. Um, they announced that name publicly a couple months ago. But what this does is it allows you to stream games. Microsoft is literally building data centers full of Xbox hardware or, or Xbox like hardware. And what it will do is any device that has a screen, you will be able to stream games and play them on that display. Microsoft already offers this a little bit. If you have an Xbox and the win- and Windows 10, you can stream your Xbox to anywhere um, you have a Windows 10 PC right now. And it, you can play on that device. And so what they're doing is making this available across the Internet. So. Will he will Peter be able to play Halo or other games on his phone? Yeah, he will. What we don't know yet, and this is what Microsoft's big breakthrough is, is how is that latency going to impact performance? Microsoft says they they think they figured it out. And uh, we're waiting to see how that materializes here, which we should start to see actually next year is when they're going to start entering some private testing of it. Um, and then eventually in 2020, it'll be more broadly available. So. Peter, you'll you'll eventually get to do it. It's just not going to happen today.
0: That's uh that's fascinating. Thanks. I hadn't I hadn't heard anything about that. That's so that's so interesting. Um. So my last question before we go on to talk about your book is, um, what do you think is the best thing that Satya Nadella has done since he's taken over Microsoft?
1: Well, it depends on who you ask the best thing he's done is he Satya Nadella and Amy Hood gets credit for this is uh, turning around their stock price It was stuck between roughly 25 and 35 dollars for about a decade and right now it's somewhere over a hundred bucks So depending on what side of the coin you're on I'm quite literally some people might say the stock price but I think what Satya has done is he's changed the internal culture and I think that is probably the most important thing he's helped the company um, before Satya became the CEO he helped launch Azure, which is Microsoft cloud service that's how he he got kind of popular inside the company and so he understands what microsoft's role in the world is and once once it became clear that microsoft is a productivity company granted xbox is a little out there but xbox is doing pretty well same with surface but they are a productivity company and once he once he aligned on that topic and got other people to buy in He was able to help change the culture more from this like, oh, gosh, we're doom and gloom. We're Microsoft. We're just going to kind of eat things and just be like this big ogre walking through to making people actually want to work there again. And so if. You boil it down to one thing: he's been able to shift how people think about working at Microsoft. And I don't want to say he's made the company cool again because they tried to quite literally—that's what their marching orders were—make or Microsoft cool. But he's he's helped Microsoft find a purpose in the new world of cloud tech and and productivity. Yeah, thanks thanks for that. That sounds that's
0: it's very convincing. Um, and it is it is amazing looking at Microsoft's stock price and what's happened since since Nadella took over. It's, it's quite incredible, mm-hmm. uh, as I think you've written about, you know, Wall Street is on, is on his side. Um, uh, so going, going back to, to former Microsoft leaders um, and moving on to the subject of your book, Beneath the Surface, um, you write about how Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer fought over Microsoft moving into hardware, and I think that this might be the right place to start when we're talking about the yep. surface. Um, what, what was the nature of their – I mean, who was on which side in that
1: argument? So, t- t- moving back even further, when Microsoft was starting to work and build an interface that needed a mouse, Microsoft kind of was there and says, hey, and Bill Gates didn't think that Microsoft should take that risk and that they should just give money to destiny. And so Bill Gates didn't want to build this. Um, Steve Ballmer did. The board eventually kind of, well, the board obviously sided with Steve Ballmer, and they decided to build this thing, and that's kind of... It was a very heated conversation because you got to remember at that point in time, Microsoft was basically um, the provider of the software and then their OEMs did everything. And there were, Bill Gates' argument was that we're going to upset our partners, they're going to leave us and do something else, and then we're going to be out of luck with our dominant position in the market if we start building our own hardware.
0: Yeah, that's re- really interesting. OEM is original equipment manufacturer. And that was that was something that I totally didn't appreciate until I read your book about how important those relationships are uh, for a company where, you know, so if, if Microsoft goes into a certain area that its original equipment manufacturers see mm-hmm. themselves in, then they, it starts to become a competitor. And this was actually one of the reasons that Ballmer wanted to insert himself into the launch of the Surface. Um, and so if I understand it correctly, uh, and in order to sort of be reassuring to all these OEMs that Microsoft relied on and who in turn relied on Microsoft. Um, and so the Surface itself, uh, can you talk a little bit about what it was, what the idea was for the Surface at the beginning? I believe it began life as a $10,000 table.
1: Yeah. So the Surface brand um, got started as a, ta- as quite literally a table. A guy named Stevie Batish uh, was working on this thing, and it was – it was conceptualized as a product that was going to de- blend the physical and digital world. And so it was this really large, expensive table and it ran this custom OS and surface. What you could do is you could go up and take your, take your phone and put it on there. And then it would recognize that it was a phone and you could transfer photos and you could put a, uh, put your keys down there on it and it would recognize that it was a set of keys and that it would say, okay, Brad's home. That means I can turn the lights on and unlock the doors and do whatever. Um, that's how the product, the, I should say the brand got started. Microsoft ended up kind of killing that product line. They built two iterations of these tables. And then it was during that second iteration of the table that they said, hey, we're going to start building tablets. And they needed a brand name. And they already had the brand name Surface, which made things a lot easier because they didn't have to go after trademarks and create all that paperwork. And so they went from from table to tablet, essentially. And then the brand just kind of. Caught. I don't want to say caught fire because it it definitely didn't at first. But the you know the rest is a kind of history there. And if I understand correctly, the
0: the name Surface came from I think an observation Bill Gates made about how every surface in the future was essentially going to be a
1: kind of. Computer yeah, models. you're exactly right. He Bill Gates used to create these things or he still does I think he calls them gates notes and but he now does it from a philanthropic perspective uh, But inside the company he used to write these notes about where he thought computing was going and in one of them He said everything you touch will eventually be a computer or a surface where you can, can compute. And so that's how they started to kind of come up with this name. And they, they they floated around it a couple ideas way back then. But Surface, because it was available, made the perfect sense. And it was already in this note. And they had the ability to trademark it. And so they ran with it.
0: And so they decided to build this new type of product, changing the way we interact with, with the intention of sort of changing the way we interact with things, or at least being, being, ahead of of their competitors in sort of understanding that this is where the future was going to go. And it was in, an incredibly secret project mm-hmm. internally. And they had a, what what you refer to, or I mean, I, I presume it was their term, but a tenting process for getting into the Surface hardware project. And I was wondering if you could explain to people a little bit about that. How does, how do you, how do you, guard secrets within your own company from other
1: people. Yeah. So, tenting at Microsoft kind of refers to paperwork, if you will. And um, when they were trying to build out these products, it was under complete secrecy. The employees who were working on it weren't allowed to talk about it. And so what Microsoft would do is if you wanted to work on the product, or if you were allowed to work on it, whatever terminology you want to use, they would put you through kind of a, a process that they call tenting, which is where you go through some interviews, you talk to people about how to keep things secure and private. and The responsibility you had for working on the project and had to sign a bunch of documents. Um, There was an urban myth, if you will, on Microsoft campus that at some point, if you reach like the the highest or the lowest level of tenting to be able to see everything, you had to talk to a former CIA guy, although nobody could ever confirm that. And the whole idea was to essentially kind of scare the individual from talking about these products outside the confines of work.
0: Yeah that's that's really interesting. Uh, when I was reading that that section of your book it reminded me. I I had some corporate secrecy training back in my days in finance and um the story they used to scare us was a guy was in a bar in London once and he said I'm going to Copenhagen tomorrow mm-hmm. to his friend. And the next day in like the FT or whatever it was it said, you know, Macquarie's buying the airport in in Denmark. Yep. <laughs> um uh and uh, that story worked really well. Uh, you know, it, it conveyed to you the fact that there could be a journalist, you know, maybe like, maybe like mm-hmm. you, uh, sitting next to you at the bar who knows exactly who you are and exactly what division you work in. And, you know, it can be the most minor of things can actually, if, to someone who's knowledgeable, it can, it can get, get the secret out. But I guess, I guess the sort of more specific question I have is, but internally, though, you know, why, why, why would it be so important to keep this secret not let's put leaks into like bracket leaks for a bit Mm -hmm. why would it be so important that some microsoft employees know what's going on and others don't so
1: there's the biggest challenge was at first keeping the message to OEMs correct, right? They, they didn't want this thing to come out that Microsoft was building a tablet and then they didn't want OEM partners to like pick up the phone and call Balmer at the time. be Like, what do you mean you're, at, you're, you're building a tablet? That's our space, you can't do that. And so they wanted to keep one, the message correct, And make sure that when it was ready and announced that they had all their ducks in a row and that everything went perfectly and that nobody would go walk away angry was kind of the the idea. The other side of it, too, was that this was a brand new project for a brand new operating system. And they weren't quite sure what they were doing. Right. They had a lot of different ideas. They didn't know what was going to make it. Um, They didn't want people on the outside world finding out about it because Sanofsky was so convinced that he had the perfect idea that he didn't need that outside support. So he created this silo. He locked everyone in. And people just became real secretive. And this is one of the primary problems with Microsoft, at least at the time, was that everyone was thinking about me rather than us. And that's what kind of led to this disaster of hardware not being ready or hardware mostly being ready, I should say, and the software not being ready. And then you have software that's suddenly not ready. But then it's a terrible experience because everybody was so focused on their particular job and not the overall mission, primarily because of these lock ins of of people only working on specific projects and why they, they felt the overall need to lock everyone in like this. There There's varying theories, but I really think it just comes down to Sanofsky thinking that he had the right idea. He didn't want anyone else to get credit for it. And he's going to build this thing in absolute secrecy and surprise the world.
0: And who who, who is Sanofsky and how did he get this into this position where he could do something like that within a company like
1: Microsoft. yeah so steven sanofsky started um in well he started before then but he kind of came to notoriety working on office if you remember the ribbon uh was a big deal when microsoft changed the the ui of office yeah. uh, i think it was 07 or sometime around then and he was part of the team that created the ribbon he was real controlling over that experience and it went pretty well once people got adopted to it And so after working on that, uh, he was in charge of Windows 7, essentially. Uh, Vista was all screwed up, and he was on the team to help fix Windows from going from Vista to 7. and, And to his credit, he did do a good job there. And so because I think he did such a good job with 7 that he had this, OK, I, I absolutely know how the market works now mentality and then just went all in on Windows 8. And unfortunately for him, his legacy involves Windows 8. Most people don't think about the things he did before then that were good, but it, it really does end up with Windows 8. And that's how kind of he got into that role. Boy, it's 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 uh,
0: so easy to shit on things that other people yep. do. But I fucking hate it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's one of those things it's like that little animation you know you would never invent that
1: Yep. Yeah. if
0: you actually used it the way people <laughs> use it to do serious work but sorry uh, um, so anyway I guess I've I've got to say I sort of you know that guy ruined a lot of people's productivity experiences as Microsoft ex- describes them by building that ribbon so yep. I'm glad he got a little bit of come down <laughs> um uh sorry that's me <laughs> um but anyway so i mean we've we've you know you've, we've been sort of dancing around a little bit but then so the the first version of the the surface tablet bombed uh why why did it bomb
1: i mean so it, it bombed because the it, it, it wasn't ready. The OS wasn't ready. The hardware was OK, if you will. I mean, there weren't too many. I mean, there were definitely early teething issues, but nothing like later that happened with like the Surface Book or anything. But there were the OS just was not ready. It ran um, a version called Windows RT, the first version. Granted, Microsoft wanted to ship both products in October of that year uh, but they had to delay the more classic Surface Pro that we know now uh, by three months so the first version they launched was Surface RT which ran a version of Windows that looked like Windows it acted like Windows but the problem was is that it couldn't run applications downloaded from the web it could only run applications from the store and at that time it anemic is probably not even doing justice that the app selection in the store. I mean, it was it was terrible. And so consumers would go to the store, um, and, and employees wouldn't quite understand. They'd be like, "Yeah, this is running Windows. You can grab it." So they grab this tablet and they go to the home and they would they would type Chrome into their search browser. They download Chrome and they would say, "Hey, this can't run Chrome." And so then the user would be confused, and they can only run apps basically blessed by Microsoft at that point. And um, it, 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 that's part primarily why it bombed is the os just came up so short and was so confusing um i mean you can imagine opening this thing up and not seeing a start button you're thinking okay maybe i can get through this maybe whatever i'll figure it out and then you can't install chrome and then you're like what do you mean like the two things that i know about windows i can't do and so people were very frustrated with it and it had a very high return rate and uh, Microsoft ended up having 3 million of these things in inventory when they did a uh, $900 million write-down um, in June the following year. And what happened to all So they did companies. sell them, surprisingly. They sold every single one. Now, they did not sell them for the original price point. Some of them went for as cheap as $99. Bucks. Um, but the biggest day that Microsoft sold these things was the – a year later on Black Friday at Best Buy, they sold 240,000 of them in a single day, but I believe it was for a 199 price point. So they did sell them. They didn't dump any of them in the in the bins by any means, but um, you know, it, it was a very big learning lesson. There's a quote by Steve Ballmer that said when somebody asked about how many they should build, he said, we either built enough or not enough. Or maybe it was too many. And obviously we know the answer now is that they built too many.
0: And so, in spite of this disaster, uh, the Surface still had uh, internal supporters who won a battle to keep it. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that?
1: that yeah. Deal? So, there's... There, you you launched this product, and fortunately, Microsoft isolated Surface a bit from the rest of the company. Um, not fully, but the idea was that Surface could exist and fail on its own and not sync Microsoft. And so when they they set out to build this stuff Panos Panay who is the the leader of uh, the surface hardware team he wanted to build three iterations he thought in his mind that it would take three iterations to build something that consumers would love and fall and, and use every day and so That was kind of the marching orders when they shipped the first surface RT. They were already about six months of development into surface RT 2 Which means that they were gonna build the second generation no matter what happened to the first and that was kind of the struggle a little bit. It was like, oh, my God, you guys did a $900 million write-down. But they're Microsoft. They, they can't throw in the towel. You know, They were just kind of – they weren't sure where their place in the market was yet. And so they couldn't give up. And so they just put their head down and, and kept charging forward. And um, they took a lot of flack and they, they took a couple black eyes. But by the time they got to the third iteration, when their back was against the wall, they finally shipped a product that, that did pretty dang well for the company in, in retrospective comparison.
0: And how would you characterize the Surface's position in the market now for tablets? I know I know you've written recently about how the company behind the the LSAT mm-hmm. test uh, has recently chosen the Surface uh, as its as its sort of you know delivery mechanism for its test going forward. So it, it, it's it's trusted in. And-
1: yeah. So what Microsoft set out to do from day one was to build the premium brand in the PC industry. Up until the Surface release, um, if you wanted to buy a high end PC a high-end laptop from whatever company the problem was that company would make a $3,000 laptop and they were also selling a $400 laptop There was no truly premium brand. They wanted to be the Apple of the PC world and it took them a long time And you could argue that they're not fully there yet But I do think that a lot of people now cross shop say a MacBook Pro with a Surface Book They may not buy the Surface Book but they're at least looking at them in the same light. And that was what Microsoft was trying to do, was to build the premium brand, which is why you always see that their price points are a little bit higher than their their OEM partners, which is by design. Microsoft will go into a market and make make the top end. That is their goal, is to make the most expensive product in that category. And we've seen it with the laptops. We've seen it with tablets. Uh, we've seen it with their all-in-one that starts at like 3200 bucks. now. That is where they want to be. Uh, it took them three years to get there and a couple of massive incidents along the way. But that is what they want to be seen as. And this LSAT um, was a massive, a massive win for the company. I believe they sold 40,000 of them uh, or, or I should say are going to sell 40,000 of them over the term of the contract to LSAT.
0: Yeah, that's just that's just amazing. Someone uh, someone's going to have a good Christmas bonus. This oh, yeah. Year. <laughs> um. So thanks a lot. Thanks a lot for that story. It's just it's just so fascinating to see how uh, these these huge developments happen within companies, mm-hmm. and the momentum they get, and, and where they go. Yeah, it was uh, a
1: lot of fun to write.
0: Yeah, actually, I so I've got a question about that. So you, um, uh, the next, just before we move on to the next part of the. Uh, Podcaster, and I should say, given how long we've been talking, the last part of the podcast, we'll talk to you about the process of writing the book. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you 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 had about a couple of dozen contacts that all uh, gave you information (laughs) anonymously. How did you develop that that network of people?
1: So that network was developed over about ten years, and so some of the people had moved on, some of the people were still at Microsoft. And I'm a big believer that you shouldn't burn a bridge, right? Um, I'm a very outgoing positive try to be generally nice human and so I had the idea to write this book Let's say March sometime around then and one of the first things I had to do was make sure I had enough Understanding of the content which I felt like I did and I organized some notes and whatnot And then what I started doing was just firing out messages to people who had talked to me over the years and there there were people I had not talked to in eight plus years and um, they were all very happy to try to help me, um, obviously anonymously, because it could impact their career if, if their names were tied to this stuff. So that was a big step was saying, OK, this is anonymous. You just I, I promise to keep your information private. Um, but I, there were a lot of people who said no. Um, Steven Sanofsky did not want to talk to me. Um, I, I thought maybe he would. Because this is kind of his to get it started But he was very much against the idea of talking to me, which that's fine. That's his prerogative But that was it was just calling on old friends and current friends and being like look I want to tell this story Can you help me make sure it's right? And um, a lot of people were very forthcoming and very candid And I did my best to try to craft the the narrative in a way that showed what was actually happening, which You know, if you had a bent against Microsoft, you very easily could have turned this into, hey, they just got lucky. Um, But I don't think it's – they had luck on their side. I would say it was probably about 30 percent luck, 70 percent just ambition um, to get to where they are today. And so why did you
0: decide to self-publish this book?
1: Yeah, so there was a lot of thought and challenges with this. One, um, Blue Whale Web Media Group is a publishing company, right? At the end of the day, we publish things not in book form but we wanted to explore this idea and see like okay can we actually create a book and and candidly it was pretty much all me i mean not a big surprise i'm a very self motivated upstart person just kind of cut cut my own way through the forest type type thing and so i did pr- approach a couple brokers um and the, and the deals that we were getting or being offered or even just loosely talked about weren't all that great typically what happens is, is they'll they want to buy the rights to the book for some amount of money and then you get a royalty for each book sold. And some of the royalties were a dollar per book sold. And they give you you know a few thousands up to 10,000 bucks up front or whatever the deal may be. And knowing the reach that my company has, Blue Web Media Group, and knowing how much personal reach I have, because I have a lot of friends in the industry, um, I, I kind of went with it. I had lunch with a friend who had written a book before. And he he looked at me. And he's like, candidly, he's like, he, he, the holy grail of book sales, physical book sales, is getting into an airport. That is where you want your book to be because a lot of people will just grab them to read on a plane. And he goes, when was the last time you walked into a bookstore? Um, and, and that kind of just resonated. It's like, okay, I I don't go into Barnes and Nobles anymore. I read a lot of books, but a lot of them are in Kindle or through Lean Pub or whatever. There's a lot of digital formats. And so the idea to self-publish just kind of just fell into my lap. Um, of course, we had to do the physical side. So figuring out that, that logistics was a challenge. But, uh, but so far, it's I think it's been the right decision. I mean, the book is selling pretty well across the different venues that it's it's out and available in. And um, we had some really strong days the first couple days with the physical side as well. And uh, the physical books only been available for about a week, maybe a little bit longer. Um, and in the world that we live in today, digital distribution is pretty easy. You can figure that stuff out. And when we when I figured that most people would buy it digitally, I was like, well, what am I paying a traditional publisher for? You're paying for distribution distribution. And you're paying for PR. I didn't need help with the PR side. I can do all that, and I I, I very much believe I successfully did it very well on the day of availability. The distribution side, um, I could have used some help with, but you know we figured it out, and I, I think we're doing okay. And and I wouldn't hesitate anyone else who thinks they have a good idea, and as long as you have the ability to do the marketing side, to to take a stab at at trying to self-publish because it's not as scary. And this is easy to say being on the backside of it now. It's not as scary as you would think. Um, it takes time and you're going to have some late nights, but it's definitely possible.
0: And why did you choose LeanPub to write the book and, and produce the ebook and then presumably the yep. print ready kind of PDF output that you would use to get it into print on Amazon?
1: So here's, here's the problem I was looking to solve I knew how to write, I, I'm, a, I'm a writer, I understand how to write. I don't understand how to make an ebook. Like I don't – I didn't understand at that time how you take text and turn it into a digestible EPUB format. And so it was, OK, what tools are available? There are, there are a lot of tools out there um, that allow you to do this. And everyone should do their own research and, and approach it your own way. But for me, it was, OK, LeanPub is there. Um, I had known other people who had used it. And it was relatively simple. You just go and sign up, and then you guys present a series of options, such as writing in the browser, um, the Dropbox, uh, what is there, Google Docs now. And so it was just kind of um, okay. Here, you know, here's a turnkey solution that I think that I can work with. And so I just I just went down that route because it seemed to be the product that fit my needs for getting an EPUB file that I could then distribute on my own. Um, or through your store or through Amazon, and it was a, it was a relatively easy process in the end. There were there were some definitely some teething issues along the way. Um, you know, if you when you talk to Peter next, I think I emailed Peter probably two dozen times, but um, the the end product has been. Par- when it perfects probably an inaccurate word mostly because I know there's some grammar issues and I still got to fix them but it's been it, it got me to a place where I can sell this thing and feel good about it and um, You know, I, I wouldn't hesitate to tell other people to to approach Leanpub pub candidly There are some caveats that every I think everyone should be aware of but there's also some great features such as that export to print saved me so much time that I can't really imagine how I would have done it any other way and got the book shipped on time.
0: Yeah, it's really it's really interesting. You mentioned the, um, the two dozen emails. So uh, just by coincidence, the, the, the last interview I did for this podcast was the first with an author who used LeanPub to create online courses, which you can do on LeanPub now, and you're actually the first author – I've ever interviewed for this podcast who used our Google Docs <laughs> workflow. Um, uh, yep. It's very new, uh, but but uh, you were a great first customer to have. Um, uh, partly because you know, obviously, you're you're a writer and you know you know that that side of things. But all those emails uh, helped sure. us uh, get the Google Docs workflow in shape uh, for everyone else, for you and for everyone else going forward. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks very much for every single <laughs> one of those emails. They, they helped us, they helped us a lot. And now it's
1: actually, it's actually yeah. pretty solid. Um, yeah, I was going to say it, it was cause what I started to do was I wrote it in the browser and then I emailed Peter and said, Hey, I think it was Peter. Right? maybe it might've just been your generic help desk. And they said, Hey, go use Google docs. And so I, I transformed it all over and you're right. The, the early days were very rough. Um, but I, I mean, I have a, background i used to do some c plus programming and i had some time on my side so i i tried the best of my ability i know some of them were probably me late at night and getting a little frustrated with just life in general being like why isn't this working um but through the stages of it where it's at today i would feel reasonably comfortable saying okay go use google docs because now it's a pretty good workflow it it was uh it was a little challenging to get there at times but by the end of the book um you know, there's no major hurdles, I think, at at this point anymore.
0: Yeah, the thing, the thing, I guess, I guess I actually one question I have is what, why did you want to, I mean, we, we recommended it, because, you know, you know, given our understanding mm-hmm. of what you're up to, it seemed, it seemed appropriate. Um, do you, do you nor. Know, I'm sorry, this is a very, sure, in the weeds, customer development kind of question. But like, do you do you use Google Docs? No, do you,
1: see, right? that, that that's one of the things that kind of pushed me towards it. Uh. Um, mostly because, right, I'm on the this book is about microsoft a lot of things we do is about microsoft and i know that there's people out there that love google docs and when i saw that you guys had this option i figured what better way to familiarize myself with google docs and the workflow than to actually do a large scale project inside of google docs and it's not quite as good as Office 365. There's some features that are missing that I, I really looked forward, to, that I was looking for. But at the same time, it was good enough that I totally understand why people use it every day and and don't see a need to switch.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't I didn't know that. So we were new to our Google Docs feature, and you were yep. new to Google Docs itself, um, which which is actually probably like the the perfect combination for solving all these problems <laughs> right away. Uh, because from both ends we didn't we didn't really know how how it was yep. going to work. Um, uh, and one of the things we were most excited about when we sort of decided to go ahead and, and build our Google Docs book writing workflow was the ability that authors would then have to use the collaborative the collaboration yes. features that that
1: Google Docs has. Did you did you use that in in the interview? Oh yes, that's one of the things that. Are it was very helpful, but also I wish Google Docs did better, but that's what we did. So I wrote, there's 26 chapters in the book. Not all of them are super long, but there's 26 chapters, which means there's 26 different documents. And what we did was use the Google version of track changes. And so Paul Throd edited the book. So he'd go through, read chapter one, make all his edits, and then I would follow up and make the corrections or reject them as needed. And so, yeah, we use that heavily. And that's again, one of the reasons why we went down that Google Docs route was because it was supposed to have such a good collaborative experience for that editing process that I knew would be on the horizon.
0: Uh, My last question is, I mean, you've you've sent the 24 emails, but um, if there was one uh, more thing we could uh, fix for you or build for you, what would you ask us to do?
1: If there's one thing, there is one still minor bug, but I've almost... I haven't quite figured out exactly how to replicate it, and as soon as I do, I'll, I'll send you guys an email. There's a bug with image location currently with with the plugin. Um, when you hit preview and then you export a file to PDF, it seems like the first time I do it uh, on any given edit, the images are swapped like they're out of place but then if i do it the second time it's perfect so basically what i've gotten into the habit of is i just export it twice the second one's always good and then i just run with it but other than that there's not a whole lot the only thing i could think of candidly is maybe better documentation on just how to use the plugin um just because i didn't I much like anybody else, I was just clicking stuff and dragging things like I didn't even realize for the longest time that you could drag the chapters around in that right rail. Uh, I was actually renaming files and dragging and and copying, pasting content. Uh, But yeah, well, I had no idea. I was just like, okay, there's chapter 23 and there's chapter 26. Well, crap, I need to swap them. So I would just copy and paste the text into the right chapter rather than dragging it around. And then one day, I don't know if I accidentally clicked or whatever, I, I drug it. And I was like, oh, God, you can just drag chapters around. That's great. I wish I would have known this a month ago.
0: Thanks. Thanks very much for that. Um, We're actually uh, going to be deploying uh, a redesign of the author, what we call the author app, but the way you Mm -hmm. navigate around pages and do things. And, you know, the next task is going to be making videos. uh, And I will. 100% make sure (laughs) to show in the Google Docs workflow video that you can do that because, uh, you know, it's just, it's just so interesting to hear that, that, that you were doing that copying and pasting. I mean, it's exactly the kind of thing that I do with all kinds of products all the time, but you know, we, we, but it's also the kind of thing that it's, it's, that's the kind of thing that users don't often tell you about. So it's really great, great to know, um, that we can, you know, we, we've actually built a solution for a problem that people are finding ways to solve without, you know, doing it the way that we've already built for them to do. Um, uh, the last thing I'm going to say is that this is totally yep. out of order uh, uh, in the sense of sequence, but um, I wish I'd said this story earlier when you talked about being in college and trying to make money. Um, by coincidence, we have a former colleague named Mike Rowe <laughs> um, who uh, got a little bit internet famous when he was a teenager because he created a little consulting company called Mike Rowe.
1: Wait, you had, you, I know him. Well, I don't know him, but I know the story. He got Didn't he get sued by Microsoft yeah. for trying to –
0: Oh, they uh, approached
1: him? Yeah, he got in he got in trouble uh and and
0: then I, I don't know the exact story, it's actually on Wikipedia. Uh and just for everyone listening, his name was R O W E, so Mike Rowe and, and so he got Mike Rowe saw and there's actually also another famous person named Micro, but anyway yeah so uh the story's on Wikipedia I haven't read it in a while but yeah he got he got in some heat but then Microsoft got in some reverse heat for going after just some Canadian teenager and I think he got like an Xbox <laughs> or something out of it uh but I think he wishes he'd got more oh man yeah that that is <laughs> that is nuts yeah that's just a funny a funny coincidence uh well um Thank you very much, Brad, uh, for taking the time to do this interview. It was a really fun conversation. Uh, and thanks for uh, taking the time to talk a little bit about your experience uh, making a book and uh, using Leanpub. And thanks for being a Leanpub. Well, thank
1: you. I mean, this was, uh, this was a lot of fun. This was a lot of fun. Thanks.